the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. This morning, weather permitting, uh, some churches will be taking the Holy Sacrament and leaving the church. They'll be leaving their buildings and walking through their neighborhoods. A few churches may have done this on Thursday, Corpus Christi Day, on many calendars, and others do it today in celebration of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. When I was first ordained, I served at the Church of St. Mary the Virgin, and the practice there on Corpus Christi is to move through Times Square with the reserved sacrament and then back into church. That's what they'll be doing this morning, I presume, weather permitting. Every year that I was there, we would do that uh, sort of procession through Times Square around people standing in line for discounted tickets to the shows. And we would end up taking back into church with us 10 or 20. In one year, there must have been 50 people just curious. Who are these crazy Christians and where are they going? A part of it felt absolutely medieval and anachronistic. But another part felt like just the right kind of expression for a church in Times Square. I remember one of the first years I was there, and someone brought us a newsletter from another church where another priest had commented on this practice. He felt that it was an awful thing that taking the Blessed Sacrament outside into Times Square uh, was an awful thing, and he, he called it a dangerous practice. He said it was dangerous because, he said, the sacrament could easily be defiled or disparaged or misunderstood. We had great fun with that newsletter article, you can imagine, among us in the office, thinking, oh no, we're stepping into danger, dangerous territory, we're celebrating the Holy Sacrament. We believed, and I believe, God can take care of God's self, and we need not protect God. And yet you think about it, and the history of the church has spent a lot of energy trying to protect God trying to protect God from this group or that group or um, some misunderstanding or defilement, when if we really believe in God, can't God take care of God's self? Christian history is full of conflicts between Christians and Often they're mixed up in politics and power plays, but if you look just beneath the surface, often there are also deep differences in understandings around the Eucharist or Holy Communion. Eucharist just being the Greek word for thanksgiving, another word for the Holy Communion, the Mass, the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. Within Christianity, we have an extreme variation of views. The the extreme Protestant view, which could be represented, uh, represented probably by Baptists, some Presbyterians, some others, would hold that the bread and the wine in communion, whether the wine is fermented or unfermented as grape juice, that they are simply symbols and reminders of the the loving meal that Jesus shared with his disciples in the upper room. 
course, the extreme opposite view, the extreme Catholic view, would be what some would call transubstantiation. It holds that through the words of the priest and the mysteries of God, the bread and the wine substantially and objectively become the body and blood of Christ. And so it doesn't depend on the moral character of the priest or the goodness of the people. It's an objective thing that God does in each celebration of the Mass is a sacrifice, an unbloody sacrifice, they often say. Well, those of you who know the Anglican tradition or have been in the Episcopal Church for a while, which is a part of the Anglican tradition, will not be surprised to know or hear once again that the Anglican view is somewhere in the middle. (laughs) Our church's official belief is that within Holy Communion there is the real presence of Christ, R, capital, real, P, capital, P for presence, though we don't specify or demand that people understand the mystery of the real presence in any particular way, and certainly not in the same way. And so within an understanding of what Holy Communion represents and is, uh, we can include uh, Protestants, Catholics, and everybody in between. Or if we're honest, maybe on a given day, we may be somewhere else on the spectrum of belief or piety or spirituality. And so, thank goodness, we can move around in the the wonderful muddle that is the Anglican way. Anglicans often like to point to the words of John Donne, the 16th century poet, who wrote, He was the word that spake it. He took the bread and break it. And what that word did make it, I do believe and take it. In addition to the historical and theological conflicts and even modern day differences, the Holy Eucharist communion can be dangerous territory as well if we take it seriously. It can be dangerous because it can change our lives. Those words in today's gospel put it this way, as Jesus says, My flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. That's a dangerous place if Christ is living in us, because it means we're unleashed in the world for love, for God. We can think about what it means to abide in Christ, to to live with the body of Christ within our bodies. If If we note in the back of the Book of Common Prayer what it says about the Eucharist, way in the back of the prayer book is a section entitled simply the Catechism. And it's not a catechism we necessarily have to memorize, though it might be a good practice, this Lent. Uh, But it is a good reference place to, to go back to on occasion to sort of brush up. What does the church think about this? What does the church believe about that? In the section on the Holy Eucharist, the catechism outlines what it calls the benefits of the Eucharist, benefits of the Eucharist. And it gives three. Um, They could be called benefits. I, I think of them sometimes as promises of Holy Communion, promises that come true. Those benefits are listed as one, the forgiveness of our sins. 
Two, the strengthening of our unions with Christ and one another. And three, a foretaste of the heavenly banquet, which is our nourishment in eternal life. And so within each of those benefits, there are dangers and there are possibilities. When we speak of the body and blood of Christ, we're talking about forgiveness. We're accepted. We're brought to the table. We're we're fed and refreshed again. We're forgiven yet again. And while we remember that our sins are washed away at baptism, the ongoing accumulation of sin in our life meets its match in Holy Communion. St. Ignatius of Antioch once called the Eucharist the medicine of immortality and the antidote to prevent us from dying. I love that language of medicine, that we take our medicine in a way to to strengthen us, to, to, to get us strong, to inoculate us against the evil of the world. Now, the devil won't look on such medicine as innocuous or harmless, and therein lies some of the danger. As so often happens, the deeper we go in the spiritual life, the closer we seem to get to God. Sometimes the the more difficult the challenge is. (laughs) The Eucharist helps us. Like good medicine, it increases our resistance level. Like vitamins, it strengthens us and prepares us for life, come what may. That second benefit, according to the catechism, has to do with strengthening our union with Christ and with one another. It is communion, common union. We come together. That can be a dangerous concept in a culture that suggests again and again that we live only for ourselves. That if we read the business pages and see that the economic indicators are up, that's all we need to care about. That's nonsense, according to the gospel. That's not the way to view the world according to God. The unifying work of the Blessed Sacrament reminds us that God's vision is never complete until all the hungry are fed, until there's room for everyone at the table of God's banquet of love. Finally, in communion, we're reminded that we need each other. Uh, The communion cup and common bread underline that we're not so different from each other as some might imagine. Barriers of race and class and education and differences of where we were born or where we've spent most of our life or sexual orientation or marriage status, all of that is dissolved in the common chalice. They're diluted by the waters of the Holy Spirit And the blood of Christ, which is to say the blood of God, our creator, restores us once again and shows us what it is to be fully human. The the body and blood of Christ give us a foretaste of the heavenly banquet. Mindful of the present, grateful for the reality of the here and now, we're also made aware that the Eucharist points us toward that great feast that has no ending. Earlier this week on Memorial Day, our nation paused, hopefully paused, uh, to remember those especially who've died in military service for us, who've given of themselves so that we can be free and for our opportunities. Danger and promise are all wrapped up in the idea of service, of, of military service as we honor those who died for our country 
But on a day like this, we also honor those who have died in faith, who have also stepped through fear and danger, holding on to their faith. And so strengthened by the body and blood of Christ, we can face danger. Let us risk blasphemy, as Jesus did, as we show what the body of Christ looks like in the world, everywhere in the world. Let us risk being misunderstood like Jesus did as we go out of our way to meet and befriend the friendless, to feed the hungry, to lift up the poor, to release those held in captivity. Let us risk the danger of faith as Jesus did as we take up our cross daily and follow him wherever he leads. Jesus says, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Those who eat this bread will live forever. May we live into these words, these promises that are both dangerous and delicious. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.